Okay, I'd like to start with a sound check. Can you hear me okay? Great. Yeah, great. Okay. Okay. There is a uh, Hindu epic, Mahabharata legend, where the wise man Yudhisthira is asked, what is the most amazing thing in all of life? And the wise man answers, that a man seeing others die all around him never thinks he will die. There's humor in that. (laughs) So, yeah. And here we are contemplating, contemplating impermanence, the great impermanence together. It feels rich and it feels really worthwhile and precious time we're spending together. I just want to voice that. Um, I'm really grateful to be here and spending this time with you contemplating. It's rich for me really rich, and I'm learning a lot. So thank you for all of you for being here. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to first start the talk by tying in um, to some of the explorations we did this afternoon. And one theme that came up from our writing our own obituaries and and reading them, which was, if writing wasn't powerful enough, reading them out loud or having somebody else read ours is even more powerful. Did you notice that? Did you experience that also? It was the way for me. So one thing that that was um, noted and observed in the room was um, how that reflection really clarified and crystallized what is important and, and how to align our life. Um, which reminded me of an article I read recently in the New York Times, which came out on January 9th of this year. And it was written um, by Arthur Brooks. And the title of the article, which was just, you know, just nine days after the new year, was To Be Happier, Start in... Th- to be happier, start thinking more about your death. So I wanted to bring that in a little bit, uh, that article. I had some interesting ideas I wanted to share with you. One was, he, um, he referred to the what's called the misalignment problem, that we have some goals, some what we deem is important in our life, but we spend our life doing something else. So I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs from the article for you. He says, in fact, most people suffer grave misalignment. In a 2004 article in the journal Science, a team of scholars, including the Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, surveyed a group of women to compare how much satisfaction they derived from their daily activities. 
Among voluntary activities, we might expect that choices would roughly align with satisfaction. Not so. The women reported deriving more satisfaction from prayer, worship, and meditation, that's for you, um, meditation, than from watching television. Yet the average respondent spent more than five times as long watching TV as engaging in spiritual activities. Five times. Interesting, right? And that's our free time. That's how we choose to spend our time. It continues, if anything, this study understates the misalignment problem. The American Time Use Survey, I didn't know such a thing existed, American Time Use Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that, shows that in 2014, the average American adult spent four times longer watching television than socializing and communicating and 20 times longer on TV than on religious and spiritual activities. 20 times. That includes meditation. The survey did not ask about hours surfing the web, but we can imagine a similar disparity. It continues, the secret is not simply a resolution to stop wasting time, which doesn't work anyway, or just a resolution, but to find a systematic way to raise the scarcity of time to our consciousness. And guess what? Contemplating our impermanence is exactly that, is what we're doing here, is raising the scarcity of this precious resource that we have, which is our time, to our consciousness, really raising it to, to not be under the radar to the various clickbaits and this and that, but know that the scarcity of our time raising it so that we have a way from within to work with this misalignment problem. Not a should, I should stop, but it's like, I want to. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to spend my time in a more meaningful way. Motivation coming from different way, from different places, not from a place of should, I should stop wasting time, but oh, my time is so precious, it's so valuable, that I want to, I would love to spend it in these ways. There's one other thing in the article I wanted to bring in, and that was about humor, as and joy and delight that we've, we've touched on today, this morning already. It continues, Will cultivating awareness of the scarcity of your time make you grim and serious? Not at all. In fact, there is some evidence that contemplating death makes you funnier. <laughs> Two scholars in 2013 published an academic paper detailing research in which they subliminally primed people to think about either death or pain, and then asked them to caption cartoons Outside raiders found that death-primed participants' captions to be funnier. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I actually I read the, the research article, and it's really neat how it's done. They kind of prime the people to think about, to write about, or think about death or, or pain. So there are two groups, and then and they don't know what the research is about. And then they do give them New Yorker cartoon and give them to caption it. And then another group... Uh, rates how funny the captions are. And statistically significantly, 
the people who were primed to think of their death had funnier captions. Check that out. So, so I wouldn't worry so much about you losing your, uh, your humor. and Just know that in some subliminal way that becomes even more available to you. And of course, you can try to cultivate it more. And I love the comment this afternoon about running, uh, uh, feeling, um, br- bringing humor to writing your obituary. I love that. Yeah, great. So about this alignment problem, Sam Harris, who tends to write pretty evocatively, those who are familiar with his work and his writing, or provocatively also, about uh, death and the present moment, he writes, most of us do our best to not think about death but there's always part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we've wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time. It's not just that we spend too much time working or compulsively checking email. I do that. Compulsively checking email. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this, and yet, if you're like most people, you'll spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you live forever, like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. Isn't that interesting? Such a paradox we are as human beings. We know our time is limited. And yet, and yet. So, so, so seeing that and not slapping our wrist, but just, oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? Ah, that is interesting, isn't it? Speaking of his last line, these things only make sense in light of eternity to come back to a comment I made the opening night about death is what gives life meaning, its preciousness. And if we lived forever, it wouldn't be as, life wouldn't have as much sanctity or preciousness. And this idea, this idea of, of what's called the tedium of immortality, is something that the composer, the Czech composer, Janicek, um, wrote an opera about. And the opera is called The Markopolis Case. Is the story of a woman, the protagonist, who 
has lived 327 years. When she was when she was young, when she was a child, um, in in Greece, her father had um, created a potion of immortality for the king, and the king, being um, suspicious, says, "Oh, try it on your daughter first. So, the um, um, the doctor to the to the king gives the uh, the potion to his daughter, and the daughter actually passes out for a week. And then um, when she wakes up, no one really knows that she's going to live for 300 extra years. And her father is put into prison as a charlatan by the king, and of course they all die. But she continues to live, and live under many, many different names, and under um, in different countries. And and the story, the, the this this piece of art, this opera, is about um, her perspective, which is one perspective to consider. So I just want to offer it for your consideration. It may not be everybody everybody's uh, perspective who lives 327 years, but I haven't met any, so I don't know. But this is a fictionalized uh, story I want to share with you. So... So a fatigue sets in her. So when we, we see her in, in, in the story, um, she looks 30 years old. She's in the body of a 30-year-old. and But she has lived 327 years, and she's tired. There's a sense of tiredness, of life, of this coming and going of things, of samsara. She's just lived. She's seen so many things. She's lived and given birth and loved and lost and just over and over and over and over again. And and towards the end, and, and, and oh, uh, to share another part of the story, so she has come back to find the recipe. And it's a complicated story, as most stories and operas are, so... Um, it's um, she has come back to get the potion because after three hundred years, um, the potion has is losing its its effect. So she wants to remake this recipe, um, and she's going through lots of conniving and trying to get it and all of that. But but after she gets it, um, she realizes she's exhausted. She's tired. She doesn't want to make it anymore. And and this is what she says. It is a great mistake to live so long. Oh, if you could only know how easy life is for you. He's talking to the mortals. If you only knew how easy life is for you. You are so close to life. You're so intimate with life. You see in life some meaning. Life has for you some real value. Fools, how happy you all are. She's talking from this place of, of distance from life. It's just, it doesn't have its meaning anymore. And it's due to the paltry chance that you will all die soon. You believe in mankind, love, virtue, progress. But in me, life has come to a standstill. I cannot go on. How dreadful, this loneliness. In the end, it's the same, singing in silence. There is no joy in goodness. There is no joy in evil. Joyless in earth, joyless in the sky. It's interesting to consider that as a perspective. 
when I saw this, when I ran across this, it haunted me because there's so many stories of elixir of life, living forever, wanting to live, wanting to live. We never consider the tedium and how actually, the tedium of, of immortality and how actually life can make us more intimate, how, how death can make us more intimate with life, can make it more precious. Again, this is just one perspective I'd like to consider or offer for your consideration. And then, and then there is, okay, death and, and who knows? Who knows what after? Who knows? I'd like to share another quote by Sam Harris. We just don't teach people how to grieve. You know, religion is the epitome, the antithesis of teaching your children how to grieve. You tell your child that grandma is in heaven and there's nothing to be sad about. That's religion. It would be better to equip your child for the reality of this life, which is, you know, we, death is a fact. And we don't know what happens after death. And if I'm not pretending to know that you get a dial tone after, and I'm not pretending to know that you get a dial tone after death, I don't know what happens after the physical brain dies. I don't know what the physical relationship between consciousness and the physical world is. I don't think anyone does know. Now, I think there are many reasons to be doubtful of naive conceptions about the soul and about this idea that you could just migrate to a better place after death. But I simply don't know about what. I don't know what I believe about death. And I don't think it's necessary to know in order to live as sanely and ethically and happily as possible. I want to read that sentence again. I don't think it's necessary to know in order to live as sanely and ethically and happily as possible. I don't think you get anything worth worth getting by pretending to know things you don't know. So again, my apologies for people who find him a little too sharp. But the part that I want to to, um, highlight and talk about is the don't know mind. We don't know. We have hypotheses, we have beliefs, and, and that's okay. And really, it, it's, it's the parable of the poisoned arrow that the Buddha talked about. So this don't know, we don't know what happens, but we don't need to know. We don't really need to know in order to live, as he says, is sane, ethically, and uh, to live sanely, happily, ethically, fulfillingly as possible. And that really is a teaching of a Buddha that came up in one of the groups today as we're talking about it. The parable of the arrow. So the parable of the poisoned arrow is um, um, is from the Majjhima Nikaya. 
And basically, um, the sutta begins at Jetavana, where a monk, Malung Yaputta, is troubled by Buddha's silence on the 14 unanswerable questions. There are 14 imponderables that the Buddha refused to answer. So this guy was getting kind of fed up with Buddha's answer. So these 14 unanswerable questions include queries about the nature of the cosmos and life af- uh, the life after the death of the Buddha. Malukyaputta then meets with the Buddha and asks him for the answers to these questions. And he says that if he fails to respond, if the Buddha fails to respond, Malunkya will renounce his teachings. Gautama responds by first stating that he never promised to reveal ultimate metaphysical truths such as those, and then uses the story of a man who has been shot with a poisoned arrow to illustrate that those questions are irrelevant to his teachings. So I'll read a part of the sutta, which is quite humorous, actually quite interesting. So the sutta goes, It's just as if a man were wounded with an arrow thickly smeared with poison. His friends and companions, kinsmen and relatives, would provide him with a surgeon, and the man would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble warrior, a priest, a merchant, or a worker. He would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know the given name and clan name of the man who wounded me until I know whether he was tall, medium, or short, until I know whether he was dark, ruddy brown, or golden colored, until I know his home village, town, or city, until I know whether the, the, uh, the bow with which I was wounded was a long bow or a crossbow, until I know whether the, he was having fun, until I know whether the feathers of the shaft with which I was wounded were those of a vulture, a stork, a hawk, a peacock, or another bird, until I know whether the shaft with which I was wounded was bound with the sinew of an ox or water buffalo, a langur or a monkey. He would say, I won't have this error removed until I know whether the shaft with which I was wounded was that of a common arrow, a curved arrow, a barbed, a calf tooth, or an oleander arrow. The man would die and those things would still remain unknown to him. That's pretty good. He had a sense of humor. So... So what is the point he's trying to make with, with, with this? It's, he teaches suffering and the end of suffering. He teaches liberation. He teaches liberation. And this is what we're doing here, contemplating the great impermanence. And, and the work is here and now. It's right here in the moment. And who knows? Don't know mind. And for, liber- for, for living a free life, for freedom in the heart and mind, in this moment and in the moment of death, these questions don't need to be answered. It's like answering these questions about the arrow. Who shot me? What was it? Was it Oleander? Was it it's, it's akin to the wondering about the, these imponderable. It's akin to that. Whereas time can be so much better spent dealing with right here, right now, what, what we can work with, the suffering, 
liberation through being with, accepting, understanding, suffering and letting go. Charlotte Joko Beck says, every moment in life is absolute in itself. There is all, that, that's, all, that's all there is. There is nothing other than this present moment. There is no past, there is no future. There is nothing but this. So when you don't pay attention to each little this, we miss the whole thing. So it's about little this, it's about little this. And by having death as an advisor, as Carlos Castaneda says, having death as an advisor, as a wise advisor on your shoulder, it can advise you what is, what is wise, what is unwise, what is the wise way to spend your time and what is not. Death and life, life and death, life dash and, or birth dash and dash death. It's interesting, yesterday as we did the, um, the contemplation, the inquiry together, Janice and I did it too together. And uh, as we shared and discussed our relationship with death, where we're at with death, our experiences with death, was so interesting to talk about it. And it felt like death is present right here in this moment. The same way that life, aliveness is present in this moment. Death too is right here. It's the yin and the yang, they're right here. It's the razor's edge. They're both present in every moment, in every single breath we take. The in-breath, life. Out-breath, letting go. There may not be another in-breath. Razor's edge, it's right here. It's much closer than we imagine it to be. Our life is so much more fragile. It's really dependent on this breath that keeps us alive. It's right here, death and life are right here. And as we open up to it, it's intimate. We can be intimate with both all the time, have death on our shoulder. There are five contemplations in Buddhism, five daily contemplations. I'd like to read them for you. To many of you, they will be familiar. The first one, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Number two, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. Number three, I am subject to the results of my own actions and I'm not free from these karmic effects. Number four, I am of the nature to die. 
I have not gone beyond dying. Number five, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will change, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. This is the truth. It cannot be any other way. It is this way. It is this way. It must be this way because it is this way. Reminded of of Beethoven and the last major work that he completed on the last movement. In German he wrote, Must es sein, which means, must it be? And then he answers, es must sein, it must be. It must be. Must it be? Yeah, it must be. It must be this way, because it is. It must be. It must be. It is this way. It is this way. We die. Those who are dear to us, they become separated from us. And that brings up the natural process, the natural process of grief. Grief both for those we love and grief for ourselves, for this life that we care about. I like me. (laughs) And it's interesting. Years ago, when I took up, when I took on death contemplation as, a, uh, as my daily life practice. I've already mentioned to you both today and in the opening night some of the ways in which I've related to death through the death of loved ones and, and the feeling that my own death was imminent. And there was a period in my life, um, a period in my practice where... Um, where there was uh, my contemplation of impermanence and um, an anatta, not self, it had veered towards um, nihilism, too much darkness. I kind of gone off a little off the tracks many, many years ago. And I remember asking a teacher at that point that this is what's going on. I mean, this dark space, this, this what feels like a dark night of the soul. And his recommendation to me, which might surprise you, was to take up death contemplation. And, and he said to me that, oh yeah, this dark spaces you're in, I've been there. I, I know all about it. And what works is death contemplation, which was a little surprising to me. It was like working with darkness with darkness, it seemed like, but, but it somehow worked. I think what he was trying to do was to bring this sense of urgency of life, this sense of samvega, which is this urgency, like, wow, life is short and, 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 and precious. So, so taking on this, contra- this death contemplation, which I took on, um, I actually had taken, at the time I was still working as a computer scientist, but I, I took a two-year leave of absence from all of that just to contemplate, just to... To, to really simmer in these contemplations. And death contemplation was my daily life practice. Every day I was doing death contemplation um, pretty intensely. And, and in that period, um, 
for me, just sharing my process with you, it seemed like, um, you know, my, my, my mind would, would think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll die, I'll die. And then it would come closer. It would come much closer. Oh, yeah, I'm going to die. And then there would be this sense of uh, this reaction, fear, anxiety, and ah, I'm going to die. And then there would be a wave of acceptance. Yes, I'm going to die. And then there would be an acceptance of that. And then later there would be another wave. That I, would, I would be even more intimate and I would get f- feel my impending my, my death more intimately, and then there would be more reaction, and then there would be acceptance of, da, of that. And then there would be waves and waves and waves, and every time it seemed like I, I was accepting more. My capacity to take on more expanded and expanded. So this may not be the process for everyone, but just sharing my process. It seemed like there were waves of getting more and more intimate, really opening up more and more and more, until... It, there was a sense of, yeah, okay. There was this acceptance. And it feel like my, my heart, not just my mind, but my heart had molded over and had become intimate with it from every perspective and really sitting with it and lying with it and sleeping with it and walking with it. And just it it's, um, had gone through many, many waves. So if... If that might be your process too, if, if, if this feeling, if this grief or this reaction for yourself, if becoming intimate with your own death, know that it might go in waves. It might go in waves for you also. Waves of opening up to it, having some reaction, sitting with it, sitting with the reaction, opening up to the reaction and allowing that to sink in, accepting that, being exactly where you are. And maybe at some point, not accepting it. And accepting, not accepting. Being exactly where you are. I'll say more about that in a few minutes, actually. I want to take a step back and and talk about the grief process. Because grief is a natural reaction that comes up when we contemplate death, when when we lose a loved one. And when we also realize that we too are going to die, we grieve our own death. It's a natural process. And we don't do this practice in order to, to be numb, to be, oh yeah, I'm okay, it's all okay, I'm not grieving, I'm not sad. No, just to, to expand our capacity to be with everything that comes up, to hold it all, everything. I wanted to bring in the five stages of grief, the well-known five stages of grief that were first described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book on death and dying, which was inspired by her work with terminally ill patients. And you might run into these stages in, in your process here. The first stage, and these stages, by the way, they it may not be one, two, three, four, five, and you're done. You might go through them over and over and over in, in, in different ways. So just sharing them for you to be exposed to. And some of you may already be quite familiar with this. The first one is denial. That 
no, this can't happen, this is not happening, the mind is just not going to go there, it's not happening, it couldn't have happened. And when we lose someone who's dear to us in, in that grief process, actually there is grace in denial, because denial happens right away. And it's a nature's way of letting us only handle as much as we can handle. It's that titration. At first, we're not quite ready to let it all in. It's like the waves I was talking about, that they get bigger and bigger, we can let more in. At first, we're not ready to let it in. So the, the mind goes, nope, nope. Like, and that's okay. That's, if that's where the mind is, that's exactly where you are, embracing and accepting that. Don't have to be any other place. The second stage she describes is that of anger. It's not fair. You can be angry at, at the doctors, at your family, at yourself, at your loved one who has died. How dare they? It's interesting, when, when my husband died, I had heard about these stations, and I never thought I would be angry at him, but there was a moment that the anger came up. How could he die and leave me? Which was funny, it was interesting. The mind has no shame. You'll think about anything, right? It's interesting, though these stages are natural, they come up. It's okay. Anger. And sometimes anger can seem endless. And anger, feeling, again, whatever the truth of the moment is, if it is anger, feeling, being with it, it's not fair that I die, it's not fair that they die, they're so young, why them, why me? It's, this is the stage where, why, why? Well, why not them, why not me? These questions come up. The next stage is bargaining. This is the stage we can get lost in a maze of only if, only if, what if. We want the life that is past, if we're grieving for a loved one, we want the life to be returned to us. We want the loved one to be restored. We want to go back in time we want to find the tumor sooner. We want to recognize the illness more quickly. We want to stop the accident from happening. If only, if only, if only I had done that, if, if I had only done this, if I hadn't called them, if I hadn't been, if I hadn't done this, it's the bargaining. And that is natural too. It's a stage. Maybe if I eat Vegetarian, if I eat kale every day, maybe I'll live to be a hundred. If, only if. Whatever the bargaining is, it's natural. Just see it for what it is. Embrace it. Don't have to be anywhere different. The next stage is depression, is sadness, heaviness. And that's natural too holding the sadness, not, not blaming yourself for it, not judging yourself for it. It just is. It just is. It's sadness. 
Khalil Gibran, the author of of the Prophet, has a beautiful chapter on joy and sorrow that I'd like to share with you. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter arises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is it not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, let me try that again, together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep under your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. Only when you are empty, you're at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. So sadness, it's natural. It's the other side of, of joy. It's the self-same cup that was filled with your joy that will be filled with your sadness. How else can it be? Of course, of course. It must be. It is that way. It can't be any other way. And it's okay. And the last stage of the five stages of grief, acceptance, acceptance. It must be, it must be, it is, because it is, all the causes and conditions. For me, grieving the loss of my husband, it took a long time. And there is acceptance, given all the causes and conditions, given everything that was, that happened, his genetic makeup, all the life experiences, decisions, it just had to happen exactly as it did. It couldn't have happened otherwise. It is what it is. Acceptance. Acceptance. It came up today in a group as we were talking about loss, grief, and about suicide that 
that is a more intense process. Because even though the soup of grief, anger, denial, bargaining, depression, sadness, what if, all of that, the soup of grief, it's just the soup is the same, but the ingredients are more intense. There can be more anger. There can be more confusion. And to to let it be just as it is. Doesn't have to be any different. And in many cases, accepting that is difficult and being exactly where you are. I want to repeat that many, many times. I've said it many times, but, but it bears repeating. Might be a place that you're not accepting. You're angry, accepting that. Maybe you feel disgust. Maybe, maybe you feel overwhelmed. So overwhelm is a different case. Overwhelm, talk about it in a moment. But, but the various emotions, accepting that you're not accepting. And can you accept that you're not accepting right now? Can you be okay with that? Can you not judge yourself? Can you accept that you're angry right now? And you're going to feel and sit with the anger, feel that in your body. And then in the case of overwhelm, just as Eugene was beautifully talking about this morning, titrating, knowing your limit, knowing when it is skillful to, to take a step back, to go for a walk, to sit and watch the leaves, watch the trees, wash the turkeys, and just sit, have a cup of tea. Open your eyes, take in the colors, the shapes, Go for a walk. Feel embodied, because when we're in our head so much with the story, can be quite overwhelming. Be embodied, feel your feet on the ground, feel grounded, feel your hands, feel your bottom on the cushion. Open your eyes, see colors, see shapes. Feel your breath. Feel the aliveness in this body, in this moment. Feel the aliveness. That is not accepted. That is overwhelmed. Right here, right now. Just that intimacy in the present moment. Through this practice, we extend our capacity to hold and be with more and more and more. And really, this practice of Maranasati, contemplating death, is a practice to grow in wisdom and compassion. To grow in wisdom accepting the truth of how things are. Things are like this. They're like this, accepting. It is like this. Growing in wisdom, growing in acceptance, and also growing in compassion. Because this work can only be done with gentleness, with kindness, with compassion for yourself. Because there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of pain that can come up in all of this in the grief, in the sorrow. 
your, for yourself and for your loved ones. And just having that gentleness, having that hand that is ready to soften and soothe. Because growing through that compassion, growing that compassion both for yourself, for the sake of yourself and for the sake of all your loved ones, for the sake of everyone whose life you touch, It's not supposed to be tearless. It's not supposed to be easy. There will be many tears. There are many tears. And let them flow. Let them be held. And let yourself be exactly where you are. And watch the judgment. If any comes, you don't need to be any, anywhere else. The, you need to be real. And to be real is where whatever you're feeling, letting that be, accepting that, opening up to that in waves. There might be this spiritual superego that might come, oh, if I was more spiritually developed, I would accept more and I would be this and I would be that. No, being real. Being real, being exactly where you are. When there are tears, there is tears. When there's joy, there is joy. When there's laughter, there's laughter. And when there's the last breath, there's the last breath. Just as it is. To end, I would like to read the chant we did together last night. I invite you to close your eyes. Let it wash over you. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.